Uh, okay, so uh, in the next half hour or so, my goal is to make you all into hepatologists. It's not that hard, trust me, we'll go through it. Um, so we'll, we'll get there. Uh, so we're going to talk about, um, it's this hepatology for the non-hepatologist, so we're going to talk about sort of the liver aspects of treating uh, hepatitis C and the workup that you do for hepatitis C. A lot of these concepts have already come up this morning. Uh, we'll talk about progression of fibrosis um, and then some of the ways that we can assess fibrosis, um, which is going to be very important. So. Um, so the, the, our first question, a 43-year-old male comes to your clinic uh, with a new diagnosis of hep C. His first question to you, and this is a very common question I would think we would all get, is how bad is it? Um, your best answer would be based on the degree of inflammation of the liver, such as the ALT, the mechanism of transmission, the genotype, the viral load, or the fibrosis of the liver. Do I have to, don't do anything, just don't touch anything. Okay. All right. I'm done. I'm out. You guys know everything, so we can, okay. Started you off with a good one. Right. So, of course, um, the fibrosis of the liver is the, uh, the most important thing, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, getting an idea of where that is. Okay. Um, so, fibrosis is the key to understanding just to put it out there, you kind of have to say this, we all know it probably, that many patients with hepatitis C are going to have normal LFTs. So I can't tell you how many times, and you guys may have seen this in your practice, I've been seeing my doctor for 20 years, he checks LFTs every year, it's always normal, they told me the hep C was okay. So there's a lot of patients uh, that will be asymptomatic that could be slowly progressing to cirrhosis, even in the setting of AL, normal ALT and AST. Unlike HIV and a lot of other viral infections, the viral load means nothing. So when uh, the viral load goes up and goes down, it doesn't mean that the hep C is getting any worse or better. So that's a little bit counterintuitive compared to other infections. Um, and I think the trickiest thing and the thing that I really want to hit home, if you take home one thing from the next couple minutes, is how the progression to fibrosis is variable from person to person, okay? Um, and we know that there's a few things like HIV co-infection, or, sub, or concomitant alcohol use, immune suppression. There are some things that will affect that fibrosis, uh, but you know, I'll see uh, people that have had hep C for 50 years in my clinic and they barely have any fibrosis, and then you have people that have been infected for 15 years and they're cirrhotic, okay? So there's probably a lot of other factors. The reality of it is there's factors that we probably just don't understand yet that cause more fibrosis in some people uh, versus other people. Okay, so I always kind of put this in because they always slap me in the morning. So who's got coffee in front of them? All right, drink up, okay, because it will help you in your liver. So there's actually lots of lots of studies um, that are coming out that coffee is protective. So when we're thinking about protecting yourself from, um, from the fibrosis that you uh, may, may have, uh, coffee will uh, actually decrease levels of fibrosis. It turns out it's kind of a lot. It's, most of the studies are usually more than three cups. This was a study that was done looking at all-cause mortality. So if you're co-infected patients, you know, when you're counseling them, bring them coffee while you're counseling them um, because this will help them live longer, all right, when you're just talking. So um, there probably is some anti-inflammatory effect of coffee, um, so it's always a good slide to just put in the morning. Okay, so what we're going to really be talking about is this progression, this little picture here kind of talks about this slow progression. So a patient is infected with hepatitis C. Most patients develop a chronic infection. 
that infection causes inflammation of the liver, and that inflammation causes fibrosis. Once they get to uh, the end stages, which we'll talk about, that's cirrhosis, and those are the patients that are at risk of having decompensated liver disease uh, and developing liver cancer. And that's a key thing is of understanding that progression, because let, if you can catch them before they develop cirrhosis, they're not at risk of needing a liver transplant or developing liver cancer. And that's kind of key to why it's important to understanding sort of where patients are on that spectrum. So I wish that I could fill in uh, the middle part of this graph, because then this would make our lives a lot easier. Because if I had a table or a graph that I could show you, it says, oh yeah, you know, so figure out when your patient was exposed, and then look on this graph right here, and I can tell you how sick their liver is going to be. Um, things would be really, really easy, but unfortunately, that's not the case. This graph doesn't exist. So we have to do other things in order to uh, figure out where they are along the spectrum. Um, so why does it matter? Why am I making such a big deal of this? There's, there's a couple things that will come up that, you know, and I think I, I really belabor this point a little bit because I work with a lot of primary care providers treating hep C, and I think sometimes staging is a thing that just, you know, you're thinking about the meds and the interactions, which is all really important. And then I said, well, what, what is the stage of this patient? Like, oh, we, we never did that because we're just going to treat the patient anyway. So it's really, really important to know the stage prior to starting therapy. And here's why. Um, one of the first things is if a patient has advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, these are the patients that you really want to kind of prioritize in your clinic. It'd be nice if we all had clinics where we had just staff everywhere to treat every single patient that walks in the door. But hearing who you guys are and who most, of patient, most providers taking care of patients with hep C is resources in reality are limited. And if you've got 10 people that need to be treated and you've got one person that can do treatment, there's only so many hours in the day, like how do you line those people up? Who gets the treatment first? Probably the fairest way and the, and the most medically appropriate way is to treat the patients that have the most advanced fibrosis first, okay? That doesn't mean don't treat the other people. It's just when you're thinking about prioritizing, because the way to think about these folks is these are the guys that are closest to the fire, right? These are the ones that are closest to developing liver cancer or maybe needing a liver transplant. They don't have as much time. So if you stage them and you're thinking about the patients that have the most advanced fibrosis, these guys um, are the ones you want to treat. It also is important, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, is if you diagnose somebody with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, when you cure them, you're not done with them yet because these are the patients that still need lifelong follow-up. These are the patients that you'll still need to screen for things like hepatocellular cancer even after you treat them. The patients with early-stage disease, if you live in Tennessee or if you live in Illinois where I come from, they may get denied by their insurance by Medicaid, uh, which is a very, very sad thing, so you kind of need to know about that. Um, and from a practical standpoint, we're thinking about this from a public health standpoint, if you, are, if you have a patient with very early-stage disease and you cure them, you are done with their hep C treatment and their liver issues, unless they have other liver disease. Um, but this is kind of a way that you're triaging patients, and you need to know that because you need to know what to do with them after you cure them, and that's really um, important. Okay, so how bad is my hep C? So if you see somebody that walks in with any of these things, it's pretty bad. You know that they're cirrhotic. So we're talking about staging here, but a lot of times if someone has obvious features of cirrhosis, staging is not necessary because their physical exam is going to tell you the answer. So if they come in with ascites or they have jaundice or they told you they were just discharged uh, from, that's the bottom of your esophagus, they tell you they're just discharged from a variceal bleed um, or they have pulmonary erythema, things like that, 
Um, these are these are you know you kind of have your clues already. You know you can save time and money and patients time. These aren't patients you need to start doing all these staging protocols because their clinical exam uh, will give you the answer. So some people are going to have very very obvious features of cirrhosis. You've got your answer right there. But the tricky part is is you can have patients that do not have any fibrosis at all and you can have very well compensated cirrhotics and they're gonna look the same when they're talking to you and their labs may even look the same. So they'll feel good, they'll look good, they're not jaundiced, they're not bleeding, they're just regular people walking into your office and they could be anywhere from early stage to cirrhotic and you're not gonna be able to tell just based on looking at them and talking to them. And I've already told you, it doesn't even matter if they've been infected for 20 years or five years, it's still really hard to tell. So we're gonna need to figure this out. I'm pretty sure, I didn't look at your slides, but I'm pretty positive this is the only pathology slide. Okay, good. Okay. So this is it. There'll be no more today, okay, before you guys walk out of the room. But we're talking about staging. You kind of have to have a little bit of a visual of what that means when we're talking about staging. Um, so F0 isn't on here. Um, that means no scarring at all. This is the Metavir scoring system. It goes from 0 to 4. Um, F, so to kind of orient you guys, remember this is your portal triad and this is your central vein. Um, and then F1 is you get a little bit of scarring right around the portal triad. F2, you've got the scarring around the portal triad and you get these little wisps of uh, fibrosis starting to leave the portal triad. This is all considered early fibrosis. Um, F3 is what we call septal or bridging fibrosis because you can see those little bits of fibrosis start to touch. So they bridge from one portal triad to another. Um, so that's when we start to kind of worry about patients. And then you can see here F4, this is the same thing as cirrhosis. It's the same process, but it's just gotten a lot thicker. There's a lot more thicker fibrosis, and that's a patient that's cirrhotic. So we kind of group the top half of early stage, and then the bottom half is advanced fibrosis. We treat F3 and F4 as cirrhotic. It's kind of all the same. Um, and when we're thinking about what to do with them, how to screen them, what to treat them with. Okay, so you could just biopsy everybody to figure that out. So every patient that walks in your door, you order a liver biopsy. Um, that is really impractical because it's invasive, it's expensive, patients don't want to do it. If we're thinking of talking about treating thousands, millions of patients, that's, this is not going to work. Um, I will... Um, argue that I don't think a biopsy is even standard of care. I don't know about you guys. I haven't biopsied a patient for hep C. I mean, I'll biopsy him for other liver reasons, but for hep C in three or four or five years maybe. I mean, it's just, I think, I think you're not within the standard of care to really do it anymore. So you don't have to worry about that. So we're gonna show you other ways um, to look at it. But if you do have a patient that comes in um, and they, you know, they saw some provider years ago and they did a biopsy and you're trying to kind of figure out what that means, they tend to have a lot of pathology words here that just kind of talk about pathology stuff. You don't have to look at that. Just look right here in the staging. So every liver biopsy, if you happen to look at a biopsy report, is going to have a stage, and that stage correlates to the Metavir staging system. So, you know, all you have to look at, if I got this report from a guy that walked in my clinic, I just look here and say stage two. So I know that that means he has a little bit of scarring right around the portal triad, and he has those little whiffs that are kind of leaving the portal triad, but it's not that bad yet, at least at the time of the biopsy. Um, it wasn't that bad yet. Biopsy is um, complications. There's complications of bleeding, pain afterwards. Um, and then there's also some sampling error as well. So um, the other problem with the biopsy is 
If you looked at um, this, if you're the pathologist, the blue is scarring, the red is normal liver. So if you look at this one on the bottom, you'd say, man, that doesn't look so bad. I just see a little scarring here and a little bit here. And if you looked at this rectangle up here, that you diagnose that patient with cirrhosis, right? You see all this blue. So, you know, when we do liver biopsies, we're just kind of not aiming for the gallbladder. Um, so, so they're not, you're not like, or the lung or something else. So you're, you're kind of just, you know, you don't really, I mean, you're not really going to be able to pick that area from the other area. So point is, is there's some sampling error and, uh, and to, be, to be concerned about that. So what I'd like to do is kind of take you through ways of staging people. We'll go low tech to high tech because I think we've got a nice swath of people here that are in various settings with different amounts of resources. So there's kind of something for everybody here, um, uh, the good and the bad. So um, the first thing I want to go through are indirect markers of fibrosis. This has already come up um, in some of our discussion. Uh, the APRI score, which is the AST and platelets, and the FIB4 AS, age, AST, platelets, and uh, ALT. Um, so this is the APRI. Um, I'll make a plug. This is from the University of Washington Hepatitis C website. If you Google University of Washington Hep C, it's a really, really great resource. I think it's an IAS USA. They, they did something with it. I thought they did. Um, so this is, has some calculators here. So you can just Google. Uh, you can see on the side there'll be calculators. And this is the APRI score. This gives you, you put in the AST, the upper limit normal platelet count, and then they give you your interpretation right here. The higher the number, the more likely it is that the patient has cirrhosis. This is great. So if you've got a patient coming in and you're in a setting where, you know, you see the patient once and you have to make a decision, you're almost, I mean, having LFTs and a CBC is kind of, you kind of get that everywhere. It's pretty easy to get. You can sort of make that decision, advanced fibrosis or no cirrhosis pretty easily for that. You get what you pay for, so it's obviously a cheap test. You don't get all the granularity. You kind of get yes or no, or probably yes, probably no. But in a lot of cases, if what we're talking about is doing sort of you know, minimal workup beforehand, just getting patients through the system, this is really, can be really, really helpful. Um, this is also nice if you're thinking, you know, you're just seeing that patient for the first time, and you're trying to kind of triage them in your mind of like, you know, what are, you know, Patients don't just have one medical problem, they have lots of medical problems, like where are we going to put hep C as far as their uh, issues is, is helpful in that standpoint. Um, so that's the, that's the APRI score. The, the FIB4 is the same thing, it's the same calculator, it just uses a little bit more data. You can type them in. Um, really, really helpful tools. So going, that's about as low tech as we have. Now there's these direct markers of fibrosis. Um, so these are all blood tests that measure all kinds of different mediators of inflammation and fibrosis within the blood. They're all these send out labs with cool names. Um, and then they'll give you a report that, that basically tells you from a blood test how much scarring the person has uh, from their liver. So they can be called a fibroshore, a fibrotest, fibrospec, hepascore. You guys get the idea. So here's an example of a fibroshore. Um, and, you know, just to give you a sense of what, you know, they're checking an apolipoprotein A1. Okay, that, I guess that's helpful. Um, an alpha-2 macroglobulin. They check all these things. But what really is nice, and sadly my box, like, covers the most important slide, part of the slide. I think there's a formatting issue. But you can imagine right there it says F0, no fibrosis. So they'll actually tell you the answer right there. Um, so this is going to give you more granularity. Sometimes they'll say, like, F2 to F3 or F1 to F2. So it's not, it's not 
you know, it's not as bad, it's a little bit better than the APRI or the FIB4. It's nice because it's a test, because it's just a blood test. You know, this is really helpful if you have a patient population, um, you're seeing a person that has really some significant barriers to access. You've kind of got that guy once in your clinic and you want to get all the information you can. We all have patients like this that we're trying to take care of. And you're like, you got your set of labs and you got that one time, like that's your test that you want to get because you're going to really be able to get a lot of information on that patient. Um, so this is now getting a little bit more high tech. Uh, this is Dr. Wiles and I demonstrating uh, how to do the test. Remember when we took those pictures? I, we're not going to tell you who's who. Uh, <laughs> you go by the shoes. Um, so this is uh, looks and feels just. <laughs> you know, it looks and feels just like an ultrasound, except it's not an ultrasound. And you guys uh, may be wondering why there's a slice of cheese on the on the picture. Kind of weird. So this. I know, right, because I'm a Midwesterner. We just, we just randomly put pictures of cheese. It's just like how you guys put barbecue on your slides. I put cheese on mine. Um, so, um, so the story goes like this. There's, the, there's um, in elastography, you're putting sound waves through different, different kinds of surfaces and so different types of solids. And it turns out that sound travels very fast through stiff things and very slow through soft things. So the story. This is probably the most non-evidence-based thing you'll hear all day, because this is really just hearsay. So, quote, you know, you can believe it or not, is that this technology originated in France. They love their cheese in France, and they used to have this, you know, every cheesemaker had a little French guy that would go in and sample the cheese to see when it was ready, and you'd have to poke the cheese and see when it was ready. And then someone said, you know, we can use this whole sound wave idea and just shoot it with the sound wave machine. And if it goes, once, once it gets hard enough and ready to go, we're going to know that you know, we can sell the cheese and we don't have to go and taste every single one and we don't have to poke all the cheeses. Um, and it turned out it worked really, really well because as the cheese matured and ripened, then you would know just based on using this machine. And some even smarter guy said, um, you know, that same thing kind of happens to your liver when you uh, become cirrhotic and we should try it for the liver. So that it was cheese technology that was used for livers. That's how the story goes, at least. Um, so this is just, it's basically, like I said, it just looks like an ultrasound. Um, it isn't an ultrasound because you're not getting images, you're just getting readings. Um, I saw on one of your slides had a, your more and more uh, fibro scans or transient elastography machines throughout Tennessee. Um, you know, from medical technology standpoint, these are under, I don't know, I think they're fifty dollars to $60,000. They're getting less and less expensive. Now they're portable. I mean, that's a lot of money, but for like x-ray machines, it's not that much money. Um, training is really easy. Um, you can train people in a half a day how to use this. You don't have to have any sort of medical training. I bet you do them, right? Uh, yeah, so um, a lot of people can do them, and, um, and, and they're pretty easy to do. It takes about five minutes. Um, and the nice thing about this test is it gives you even more granularity. So we're talking about kind of distinguishing different um, stages of disease. Um, so this is the test that you could say, and this is kilopascals, that's what's measuring the speed. So you can say if you're less than seven kilopascals, you're in the F0 to F1 range. Remember from the histology, that means you have very, very little fibrosis. If your stiffness is 15, then you are definitely cirrhotic, okay? So this is a really nice way of telling exactly where somebody is. It's non-invasive, it's, um, it's pretty easy to do. And if you want to get really fancy, the next level of technology is MRE, magnetic resonance elastography. So this is an MRI scanner that's looking at these same principles 
of elastography. You can hook this up to pretty much any MRI machine. It's a package of software and a little bit of hardware that, that the MRI scanner needs. This is probably a little bit better um, in the sense that it is better in patients who are obese. Um, you can actually get fat content as well, so you can measure how much fat is in the liver. So if you're interested in figuring out things about NASH and NAFLD, it will give you some very reliable information on that. Um, so this is another option. I don't think it's used just because of it requires an MRI. It's not as, when you're sending a lot of patients through clinic, it's a little harder to do. Um, but this is also the technology that's available. So when you're thinking about the natural history of hep C, um, over time, hopefully this doesn't happen. If you don't treat patients, they'll develop cirrhosis, um, and they go into this very compensated state of cirrhosis. And then if they develop decompensation, that's when they get variceal bleeding, ascites, encephalopathy, jaundice, and these are the folks that are at risk of death. And at the end of the day, um, we're going to talk about decompensated liver disease for a few minutes also. But we'll get things started with another question. You're seeing a 56-year-old with hep C-related cirrhosis in clinic. Which of the following would predict the highest three-month mortality? Uh, history of non-bleeding varices on EGD, a child's A classification. Hep C that has relapsed after DAA therapy. A MELD score of 30 or HIV co-infection. You guys killed the first one, so... This one's a little harder. Oh my god, you guys are great. Okay. <laughs> Wild. I think you put that one in there. Um, okay, so the right answer is a MELD <laughs> score of 30. Okay, so when you diagnose, now this is all, we're shifting gears here. This is just patients with cirrhosis. Okay, this is not all those early stage fibrosis patients. Um, this is just talking about people with cirrhosis. Um, when you have somebody with cirrhosis, you can see cirrhosis isn't ju just one size fits all. There's a lot of different complications of cirrhosis. And what type of complications you have predict your mortality. So I like this table because I think it answers a question that patients ask me all the time and patients will ask you if you're taking care of people with cirrhosis is, is what does this mean? You just told me I have cirrhosis. Am I going to die in a week, a month, a year? What does that really mean? Um, if you're very well compensated and you don't have varices, you can see a very low one-year mortality <clears throat> of 1%. If you have varices but they haven't bled, it's only 3%. If you have ascites, you can see ascites we see all the time. Your, your mortality over one year, this is without a liver transplant, bumps up to 20%. And if you've had a variceal bleed, that goes up to almost 60%. Okay? So these are really, really sick patients when you're thinking about triaging them to transplant centers, or in some cases even palliative care, because these are patients that are very, very, uh, very sick. We have a other, couple other tools. We're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail. Child's classification. Uh, Dave already, already talked about um, using certain agents and not using certain agents, the protease inhibitors in patients who are more decompensated. So if you're going to treat a cirrhotic patient, it would be very important to look at this child's classification system to see how sick are they and are they decompensated? You can see this is, again, you just Google this, and there's a million calculators that will come up. And it looks at encephalopathy, ascites, bilirubin, albumin, and their uh, PT. And you'll get a score. It'll be 1, 2, or 3, and you'll get a score from 5 to 15. Um, and that score is very predictive of three-month mortality. So if you see a cirrhotic patient, you can do this very easy calculation to see what is their three-month mortality, because you can see there's a pretty wide range here 
I mean, you can add somebody that has a less than 4% chance of dying in three months to somebody that has a 40% chance of dying. This is a huge, huge difference. So that's something that's very important and, again, affects some of our treatment choices. This is the MELD score. Again, uh, the calculation is complicated. Um, there's a lot of, like, logarithms and things like that. But So we use these. And you can put in their creatinine, their bilirubin, their INR, and their sodium, and you'll get a score that goes from 6 to 40. And you can plot that score on a curve like this that also is very predictive of their mortality. So this is a really helpful tool as well. So in my practice, I see a lot of cirrhotic patients. So I use this all the time. This is actually what we use to rank patients on a liver transplant list. So you guys that all answered MELD score of 30 were correct. Um, but I think the a real help is if you're taking care of patients with, with hep C and cirrhosis in your community, there's probably already always that kind of like, well, you know, does this patient need a liver transplant or does this patient need to get other kind of services or what's going on? Um, what's really helpful, and I'll talk about this more uh, I think later this afternoon, is when their MELD scores are less than 15, these are patients that are in general very well compensated. They're better off with the liver they got than getting a liver transplant. And when their MELD scores are greater than 15, their survival for one year improves with a transplant. So really, kind of at your fingertips, easy way to decide, you know, am I, un am I not serving my patient by getting them to a transplant center? You know, because if you have a, a patient with a MELD score of nine, you might send them all the way across the state to go to a transplant center, and they're going to send them right back to you and say they're too well. So, you know, you don't want to waste anyone's time, especially the patient. So this is really kind of some helpful, helpful uh, clues for that. So what happens with an SVR, what actually happens to the liver, we all try to get our patients cured and we eradicate the virus, but there's also uh, improved liver histology. The liver will get better after SVR uh, and clinical outcomes will improve. Um, so this is older data that still rings true of patients with cirrhosis that have an SVR. Um, and you can see that their chances of liver-related death, liver failure, developing liver cancer, all those things go down. Um, so now we've already seen that the hep C is very easy to treat, and you don't need to treat that many patients in order to start to see real uh, benefits in health. So when do you refer patients? You know, a lot of this, I think everybody universally is talking about shifting hep C treatment out of the hands of specialists. Uh, and really kind of opening it up to, to primary care settings and different kinds of non-traditional settings. Um, so I think the key thing that, I, you know, to help hopefully talking about staging and talking about cirrhosis a little bit is not necessarily to get you guys to take care of the sickest cirrhotic patients, uh, but really to know, like, when are, how do you triage these folks? How do you make sure they're in the right spot? Um, when you send patients to a, to a specialist, not that many times. This is really, really the rare occasion. Uh, if you see someone that's decompensated with ascites, encephalopathy, they've had a variceal bleed, these are probably people that need uh, uh, more uh, advanced care, subspecialized care. Uh, MELD scores greater than 15. We just talked about that these are folks that um, uh, would benefit from transplant in some cases. Uh, and of course, anyone with liver cancer or liver mass. So um, remember, Fibrosis progression is going to be very variable. You have to stage patients. Um, depending on your workflow, where you work, what kind of resources, where your patients are, sometimes serologic markers are going to make sense uh, to stage them before treatment. Uh, if you have access, elastography is always great. Uh, and if they are cirrhotic, their mortality is predicted by their decompensation using things like MELD and child's classification. Uh, that's all I got. Thank you. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, the child's mortality or the male's one? This one or? This one. This one, yeah. And um, so, at what point do you tell a patient that they're beyond treatment? Ah, uh, well, beyond which beyond which kind of treatment? A, a Hep C treatment or a liver transplant? So these are patients, that in, in general, these are all patients that would, that the patients on the bottom of this line are, in general, patients that would benefit from liver transplant. Um, there's really no one that's too sick from a liver standpoint from the liver for a liver transplant, because if the liver is the only thing that's wrong, when we swap out the liver, they, they get better. The problem is, is are there other comorbidities, sometimes caused by the liver or sometimes not caused by the liver, that make them not candidates? Um, so if a patient has, is in liver failure uh, and also is in the ICU and is septic, that's not somebody we can safely transplant. But if they just have a high meld and otherwise are doing okay, they'll, they'll get better with the transplant. What's really an interesting, which we'll talk about at the end, is treatment. I've already told you treatment gets patients better. Um, so by treating patients with cirrhosis, and now that our drugs are so safe, treating a lot of these folks can actually start to get them recovering and maybe not needing transplant at all. So another question um, to, to ask that we sort of struggle with is when, it, when is the time to treat to try to avoid transplant and when is the time that treatment's not going to help and they're still going to need transplant no matter what? So that's the thing. So, so um, often there are times where if somebody if somebody comes into the hospital to this weekend for us that, and their meld is 35 and they're very, very decompensated and very sick um, and they have hep C, we may opt to not treat them because number one, they're so sick we don't think their liver will recover. And number two, we can actually transplant a hep C positive organ into them. There's, it's another conversation, but we're actually starting to transplant hep C positive organs into negative recipients because we can treat them afterwards to expand the donor pool for them, but that's a whole other whole other ball of wax, yeah. You know, it depends on, you know, that's, those data are for individual patients, and it's always hard to extrapolate, like, individual best practice to policy best practice. So I think a lower bar, because you would rather refer a few more of those melds of 12 and, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, a child's 8 or, you know, something like that, you know, and then they're actually, they're actually pretty well, but you're going to treat them anyways, because you don't, you don't want to miss on the wrong side of that. You don't want to be treating patients that are so... You know, I think that, that that's just for the patient sitting in front of you of what they need. But I think if you're setting up policy and triage, I think lowering that bar like you did actually is completely appropriate. Yeah.
Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to check. Um, I know that FibreSure is almost those tests are almost always covered once you have a diagnosis code for Hep C. But if you're talking about a self A patient, I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Fiber scans really fine. In a lot of places, I know in, in Chicago, we have a county hospital. And I don't know if you guys have something similar in, in Denver. Our county hospital has days that are just reserved for self-pay patients where they can do a sliding scale. Because it's really, you know, once you have a machine, you, you all your, you, you just plug it in. Yeah. So, and then you just, and then you don't need a super highly trained person to, you know, it's, it's you can train anybody in the office really to do them. So you can, you know, so, so and now I think, you know, they're starting to make more portable ones, so you can take them, you know, there's places that are bringing them in clinics, you know, having clinics going from one clinic to another, which is helpful, too. Yeah. Very. Right, and they, cause they're, they're generating such a huge potential cost as well as they can have maybe yeah, I think for the, the FibroSure test for a, for a patient who's self-pay, I mean, I think you can get most of the information off APRI. And sometimes the problem with APRI is the insurance won't accept it as a staging, but for self-pay, self that's not, you know, an issue. So as long as whatever patient assistance program you're using accepts it, you're probably good.